prepared the world for the Messiah. And specifically, we noted that uh, after Babylon had conquered the Jews, what is interesting to me all the way through history, really, is the way that God is able to, in the realm of providence, use negative things to his own advantage. Uh, even times, uh, even things that would not have occurred except that people sinned, and yet God is sovereign, he's in control, and, and he uses this to the advantage of his people and his cause, even though that, that it's a negative thing that somebody's done. And of course that's seen in the Old Testament, I think, more than anything in the life of Joseph. And when we look at the Jews, they were defeated by Babylon and carried into captivity. First the Assyrians had carried the ten tribes into captivity. And after 70 years of captivity, the Jews come back to rebuild their city and their temple. But uh, many of them, in fact most, don't come back. And so we have these Jews scattered outside of Israel uh, throughout the known world of that day. And they influence the Babylonians. And then Babylon is conquered by Medo-Persia. And we find that... Uh, that uh, the Medo-Persian Empire is influenced by the Jews. Uh, they, many of them set up their homes, and they're influenced in many ways by the Medo-Persians. Alexander the Great comes along, and he conquers a civilized world and spreads the Jewish culture. Many of the, Jew, the, the Greek culture, I should say, many of the Jews are influenced by that. But something very interesting happens, and that is that the Old Testament scriptures that were originally just in Hebrew are put in Greek. And the, as we come down to the time of Jesus, that will become very important because Greek would become the dominant language throughout the world. Although the Jews had lost their language in Babylonian captivity and, and spoke Aramaic, it was the Greek that would be the dominant worldwide language. And so here, as a result of the conquering by Alexander the Great, as a result of the Jews being scattered, we have the scriptures in the Greek language at the time of Jesus, the Greek Septuagint. And so, had the Jews never been scattered, had Alexander never been conquered, had never conquered, I should say, then we wouldn't have had the old scriptures and the dominant language of the world at the time of Jesus, the time of the New Testament. And so, as we come into the New Testament, the scriptures are in both the Hebrew and the Greek, and both are in use. Uh, the synagogues, depending on where they were located, would read the scriptures in either the Hebrew or the Greek, but they were in, in uh, both languages. Now with Rome having conquered, we now have uh, a period of peace all during the life of Jesus and during that first generation after Jesus because that Rome has conquered the civilized world. Uh, if you have a Roman citizenship, you can travel anywhere. Not only can you travel anywhere if you've got a Roman citizenship, but the church will actually enjoy the protection of Rome. Uh, that to appreciate this, you can imagine what it would be like today to move into Saudi Arabia or some of the Muslim countries and try to start a Christian church. It would be a very difficult thing because the law would actually be against you. People could beat you up or do whatever they wanted to and the law would protect them. This has been true uh, in a number of the communist countries. The law would actually be against you and you couldn't do it. And so here we have Rome, who literally has conquered the civilized, known world of that day. And Rome has a very tolerant attitude toward religions. Uh, they are perfectly willing 
to allow the conquered people to retain their own religious beliefs. As long as they paid their tithes to Rome, uh, their, I should say their taxes to Rome, and recognized Rome as the power that was in charge, then Rome was perfectly willing to allow them to have their particular religious beliefs. And so this was actually to the advantage of uh, the church as it grew up in a system of law. And they would enjoy a certain amount of protection by Rome. For example, there is no question the Jews would have killed the Apostle Paul uh, had it not been for Rome. And Paul able to use his Roman citizenship. Also, it would make it advantageous to the spread of the gospel. Think, what if Rome had not conquered at this point? What if Alexander the Great had never set the stage by conquering the civilized world at this time? Then every time you went from one country to another, you'd have problems. Remember the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt and was going into the Promised Land, that every time they came to, a, a whether it was the Moabitist or the Edomites, that they had to get special permission just to cross over into their land, and sometimes they didn't get permission. And so now, as a result of Rome having conquered, you didn't need permission to go from one country to the other. Rome controlled everything all over the known world of that day. And so we have everything is advantageous to this cause. All right, then God has set the stage also in that in the law of Moses, there are three days during the year when every devout Jew that possibly can is to come home to Jerusalem and is to offer up his sacrifices and worship God. So God has these times that he gets everybody together. Well, then, when Jesus is crucified, it will be at the time of the Passover, but all these Jews have come from all over the Roman world, and when he's raised, and, the, and when the gospel is presented uh, in the church for the first time, it'll be on the day of Pentecost, but again, we've got Jews there. And so, that when Jesus is crucified in Jerusalem, there's not just Jews from Jerusalem in, in Jerusalem. There are Jews from all over the civilized world that are there when he's crucified. And when they announce that that tomb is empty three days later, there's Jews from all over the civilized world that are present and, and know that something has taken place. And when they preach the gospel on Pentecost, it's not something that just happens in Jerusalem. That There are people from all over the civilized world that can go find that tomb and examine it and, and see that it's empty and inquire about the various stories and examine the, the evidence firsthand for themselves. And so everything is set up for this. All right, as he begins the, the gospel itself, the gospel records, we noted that there's only two that say anything about the birth of Jesus, and that is Matthew and Luke. And then we notice that after his birth, there's only one incident mentioned before his uh, ministry at 30 years of age, and that's when he was 12 years of age. Compare this to the fact that the Gospels will contain so much information about the last week in his life that this will comprise 25% of the four Gospels. So obviously that is the most significant part of the information. Now, what this writer does is that he tries to, in, in this chronology of the Bible, to tell the story in the ministry of Jesus in as near perfect chronological order as we can ascertain from the information we have. But he tells you in the very introduction that you cannot do it in a way that you know is perfect. That there are some things, you can do it in a way that in some areas that's perfect and reasonable, and then you still are left with certain events where you have to debate as to where this actually goes in the ministry of Jesus. But he blends it together, and he blends 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John together, different than in the harmonies, because like in the harmonies, harmonies of the gospel, they'll give you a column of Matthew, and a column of Mark, column of Luke, column of John, and then wherever they coincide, you can see that as you read each column. Well, he just simply taken blend takes and blends them all together, and then here at the side, identifies where the information is coming from. Now, what I was going to do to, to show you an example of, of how good a job he does on this, on page 1364, when he starts out in Matthew 13, one, this Matthew 3, 1 through 3, Mark 1, 2 through 4, Luke 3, 1 through 6, uh, here we have this statement. Uh, let's see, uh, Steve, start reading that and read on down to Matthew 3 and verse 4. But read that statement beginning with Matthew 3 and 1. Uh, read out of this Bible? Yeah. Beginning there in Matthew 3. See, he blends Matthew 3, Matthew 1, and Luke 3 together. And I want you to read down to just where it says John baptizes the people. Read that section. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, uh, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went to all the country and around the Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A, vo a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the path of him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain shall be made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Okay, now, notice uh, in the parallel Gospels here, uh, Luke 3, 1-18, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Aturia in the region of Trachonus, and Lysania tetrarch of Abilene, and Annas and Caiaphas being high priests, the word of God came unto John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness, and he came into all the country about the Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the mission of sins, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one cried in the wilderness. Okay, now, Mark 1, 1 through 8, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the mission of sins, as it's written in the book of the prophets. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one cried in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his, make his path straight. Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Okay, you can see that he really doesn't leave anything out, but he's not redundant. And so in what he does, he takes the one that has the most on that subject and uses that as his dominant passage. And then anywhere that one of the other three writers will have something in addition, he'll blend that in at its appropriate setting. But wherever they say exactly the same thing, he doesn't repeat it. And so when you finish reading this discourse, you're going to read everything and every miracle. 
but you're going to read it in less time and with, I believe, an excellent comprehension because there won't be any redundancy. You won't be read those two or three times, the, the same thing two or three times. And again, I'm not putting that down. That's great. You know, we couldn't do this without that. And you couldn't even have what you have in the way of witness without having that. But from the standpoint of somebody that has already read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and understands uh, the importance of the harmony and things like this and studied in that realm, then this makes a very quick and understandable way to read it. And also, I believe somebody that is brand new in the study of the Bible could benefit initially from this and with a desire, of course, to motivate them to get back and to study each of the Gospels individually. But I think he could benefit from this right here. Now, notice uh, the first statement here. Uh, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee. Then he mentions his brother Philip, tells where he's from, and all of the other individuals and where they're from. And the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Uh, you couldn't do a more exact job of historically locating somebody and historically giving the time than what uh, the writers do. In other words, obviously, these writers are not writing about anything in the, in the same approach that you would use if you were saying anything that was untrue. That you can take this and you can check every last statement. I mean, you, you know, uh, you know to, where to go look for information about John the Baptist if you want to. And where to go look for anything that may have been written about this situation. That everything is identified. Well, this is also important to future generations in going back and zeroing in on these events. But again, a very historical type thing. Now, compare this with what you would see in some other religious type books that claim, or that their followers claim inspiration for them. For example, when you read uh, about things within the Mormon church, you're not going to find this kind of historicity, these kinds of historical statements, where you can literally go back to a certain location at a certain time with specific people identified with that you can find traces of and deal with. You're just not going to find that. And you're not going to find them in any of the other religious books that I know of. That This really gets in to a situation where it allows us the ability to check this out from the standpoint of history and archaeology. Okay, now, notice the statement there that John preaches a baptism of repentance for the mission of sins. That's always been interesting to me as to how that was worded. There's no question that everybody is baptized and that's going to, that is converted. That's true all the way through. But it's interesting to me in the way that that specific thing is worded, that, that he preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then we find that uh, when some come down to, uh, to be baptized, who had not obviously repented, John refused to baptize them. Uh, in the next statement, we find that uh, it describes John's clothes made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt about his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, and they were baptized in the Jordan River. And then he said to crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath? 
produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. You know, hold it right there. To fully appreciate that statement, that one would just simply have to understand the Jew of that day. That here's John, who is a Jew, and he's preaching to Jews. And three of the four writers that record this are Jews. And the one that is not a Jew, Luke, is recording only what Jews that were eyewitnesses had given to him. In other words, all the information, all the eyewitnesses were by Jews. And what he says flies right in the face of the Jews. That he doesn't just call them a brood of vipers and warns them to flee from the coming wrath, that there's a coming. In other words, his coming judgment, his coming wrath, was on the Jewish people, the people that thought that they were the people of God. He's not talking to the Gentiles out here. He's talking to the Jewish religious leaders and talks about God's wrath that's coming on them. He wants fruit in keeping with repentance. And, and he knows that they take a lot of stock in the fact that they are of the fleshly seed of Abraham. And nobody but somebody that's really studied in the Jews can understand how important this was to them. They were very haughty about this. And he, they said, we have Abraham for our father. And he says, I tell you, out of these stones God could raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so here he promises a judgment, and the indication of the, the language here is it's an imminent judgment that's coming on these people. And he puts down their dependence. In other words, they looked on themselves as a special people, not because that they were so morally upright, but they were special people primarily because they were of the seed of Abraham. In other words, that although they believed in righteousness, a Jew would look at another Jew who was not righteous in his conduct and would esteem him higher than a Gentile who was more moral in his conduct. They would look on a Jew who was not as righteous in his conduct as a Samaritan, but would have more respect for that Jew than the Samaritan that, that because of intermarriage could not trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. And so he flies right in the face of this. I'm saying Jesus is recording here as saying something that not, I don't know of any other Jew that would say something like this. I just, it would be, I would be hard pressed to even come up with a situation in which another Jew based on the environment that they had and their attitude toward the Gentiles would even say something such as this. Now, it's interesting to keep in mind, too, as you read this very plain preaching about John the Baptist, that John is one of those individuals that we have uh, a witness of outside the New Testament. Josephus, a Jew who, to the best of our knowledge, never became a Christian, records how John the Baptist was arrested by Herod, how that Herod heard him with awe, recognized he was a righteous person, he speaks of John as a preacher who had converted and baptized people, and he preached repentance and, and complimented him as a moral preacher. And he records the fact that, uh, that he had condemned the adultery in Herod that had actually caused his life. And so the fact that he was this type of person is attestified by writing even outside the book itself. And keep in mind also now, all four Gospels are in agreement with this personality and character of John, Josephus, 
is in agreement with it. And then as the message went out, there, uh, the, the four Gospels published, there was never any Jew that popped up and said, hey, we never heard of John. There never was this character out here preaching in the Jordan River repentance and condemning us and baptizing thousands of people. Nobody ever spoke up and said that, that they actually bore witness that those things actually happened. Now, we can see something there that, that's going to help us, I think, in, in understanding salvation going on into the New Covenant itself. We can see there, obviously, that it is a total waste of time to baptize somebody that hasn't repented. And I think that ought to make us think twice over any type of service that's designed to get a person to be baptized just based on the fact that they believe. That you've intellectually convinced this person that Jesus is the Christ, that he's been raised from the dead, and, and that he can offer eternal life, and you're just foolish if you don't put your trust in him and, and come on. And I think, I really believe that most of the time uh, in our services that the things that are emphasized are belief and the willingness to confess him and everything like that and that you need to be baptized. But I don't believe that we put near as much emphasis on what repentance is as what he did here. And we probably do that, at least in my judgment, to our own detriment. That uh, maybe one of the reasons that we have so much worldliness within the church itself is that we don't put the right kind of emphasis on repentance in the first place. That I don't care how much we want to grow or how bad we want to convert people, it's a waste of their time and it's deceiving and it hurts the church to leave the impression that you can be saved based on your belief in baptism without repentance. That we can see here now in this repentance, he said, uh, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And so that the repentance here was something that actually had fruit. It could be seen in the, in the change of life that would take place. In fact, uh, they want to know uh, what, what does he mean by this. And so John continues now. And what should we do, the crowd asked. And John answered, the man who has two tunics should share with him who has none. The one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors come to be baptized. Teacher, they ask, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. See, the tax collectors had a certain amount they had to collect for Rome. Any more than that was theirs. And so they had a reputation for being very dishonest in collecting enough money to make themselves wealthy in the process. Don't collect any more than you're required to. The soldiers ask him, and what should we do? Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And so things that soldiers normally did in the line of duty, he condemned that. Now, there is something interesting to me there also. Notice he didn't tell them that, that there was anything wrong in being a soldier in this instance. That uh, he told them that they ought not to extort money and they ought not to accuse people falsely and that they ought to be content with their pay. But he, couldn't, he didn't condemn them for being soldiers. All right, the same with the tax collectors. He didn't condemn them for being tax collectors. He didn't say quit collecting taxes, even though they were collecting for Rome. But he told them to be to not collect any more than they were required to. In other words, to be honest in the job itself. So he, it actually, uh, you know, to my mind, would be an indication that you could do either one of these professions, if that, in, in the sense that he was talking about here, if in your individual conduct it, it was possible for you to conduct yourself as a Christian or as a, a believer in God's law and, and do so. Uh, any comments on that first part?
Okay, John preaches then uh, repentance. Another interesting thing that uh, this guy gave in his narration, you know, that I hadn't thought about too much before, but I thought it was, I thought it was a real interesting point. He pointed, it was very interesting. See, John didn't come into Jerusalem. He was out there in a deserted area. And these people, it's, the indication is that by the hundreds and hundreds and totally maybe in the thousands have gone out to hear him preach. So that's very interesting that here you've got the synagogues in town and you've got these, all these schooled preachers and everything like that, and these great expositors of the scriptures. And here's this wild man out here in the wilderness. And they are by the score going out to hear him preach. Obviously, he was, he was saying something that was very attractive to the common people. And, and interesting, though, that his preaching was extremely plain. I mean, he condemned their sin. And uh, what the observation that he makes in his, in his uh, comments here is that, you know, that uh, these people know what sin is. And maybe they was fed up with the, the wishy-washy nothingness that was being presented, you know, in their synagogues and things like that, that they really identified with this. And, and he got right down to the truth and condemned sin. And so on the one hand, he attracted people who, who identified with that, but then we see something else happens. He also causes people to hate him. Obviously, these Pharisees don't have a lot of use for him. And we're going to see that uh, when Herod is condemned for adultery, he doesn't have a lot of use for him. I think there's something to learn there. Today, our, our preachers are being trained to preach, and they go into the, the, I mean, if you go into a pretty good-sized church, and the sophisticated, organized churches, the idea is, on the one hand, to present truth, but to look for the most tactful way to present it so that you don't drive anybody off and that you don't offend anybody. And you just get it out there in a nice way. And that's it. I'm not condemning tack or anything like it. But I'm saying that, that obviously that, uh, that when sin is condemned, that it, it needs to be, it seems to me that there's nothing wrong in condemning sin itself in a plain way. And I think by the time that we make it so tactful that we don't offend anybody, that what happens is two things. Number one, we don't motivate a whole lot of people to truly repent. Number two, we don't get anybody mad at us. And so we have a, a near nothing that happens morally. On the one hand, the, the people that would be offended are not offended because it's done in such a tactful way. And then on the other hand, though, people that really need to repent are not made to think so serious about it. If you're doing something that's wrong, I mean really wrong, and uh, I come up to you in just a real nice, tactful way and smile and and talk rather nice and everything like that. But yet leave the impression that although, you know, I disagree with this, that you're doing. That even though you continue to do it, you and I will just continue to associate and have our good talks and work together and everything like that. That is not a lot of motivation, it seems to me, for you to really think serious about your conduct. But if I make it clear to you that what you're doing is so serious a thing, that it literally will break our relationship, that I cannot endorse you know, that kind of behavior, and, and it would break the relationship. It seems to me that I think, it, and I'll let you know, I think it's serious enough it could cost you your soul. It seems to me that no matter what happens, that you're at least more apt to think serious about that.
I mean, you may wind up mad, or you might repent, but you're at least more apt to think serious about it than to just present it in such a tactful way that you understand that I disagree with that. But by the same token, that it's not anything that's obviously that terrible about it. It's sort of like talking with children. Uh, sometimes if they're doing something that's wrong and you say, Johnny, don't do this in a real sweet way, but because you say it in such a sweet tone and you're so understanding about it, that Johnny just continues to do it. Of course, we experience this in the, in the school system. And then, though, you find that when you say it in a more firm way, and when you make it clear to Johnny that if you do it, these are the consequences, then Johnny realizes that, hey, this is wrong, and they're not going to tolerate that. And I sometimes think that maybe in the preaching we do the first thing, and that's what's happened. And it's a type of thing that, that really is, is the par for the course, I think, in most of the very big congregations who more than anything else are just simply concerned about growing and the number of people that comes into that, into that particular building. And anyway, at least, I think it's something to think about that Jesus was very complimentary of John the Baptist, and he obviously, in other words, when somebody says that they have problems with plain preaching, then they've got problems with the man that Jesus complimented above any man that ever lived. He said there never lived a greater man than John the Baptist. And John obviously was indignant at sin. I mean, he just obviously was in, indignant at it. And it comes across in the, in the preaching. And so on the one hand, he makes people mad. But on the other hand, there are people that repent. And maybe we can learn something else. And I think he points this out somewhat in his introduction too. And that is, contrary to what we might believe, that when we start condemning what is wrong in a plain way, that on the one hand, although you do make people mad, and although you do run people off, there's also people out there that are sincere who are going to be attracted. And so you, the end result is you're going to attract the type of people that you, that you actually want. Any comments? Okay, uh, John announces the Christ. The people were waiting expectantly and were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. So we can see something from that little statement. That is, at this time in history, they were waiting for the Messiah. Daniel had said at the time of this fourth great world empire that God would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. The Messiah, the anointed one, was supposed to appear. I remember that Daniel, more than him, goes into detail on this. And so, obviously they were waiting for the Messiah. And so anytime somebody came along that was a real strong preacher and attracting an audience, they began to wonder, is, is this the Messiah? And so... Uh, in fact, remember when Jesus spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem, he said there will arise false Christ, and don't follow them. Uh, there were others that would come and would preach, and others would think he's the Messiah, or he's the Messiah. And so John was strong, and they want to know, is he the anointed one? Notice how that word Christ is used. If John might possibly be the Christ, it's, it's, it was never, it's not the name of Jesus. Uh, it's a word that simply, uh, the Greek word Christus means the anointed one. It's the parallel of the word Messiah, the Hebrew word for the anointed one. And so the Old Testament had prophesied of an anointed of God that was coming, uh, just like David. And so they thought maybe he was, he was that person. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. 
But one more powerful now will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. According to Lamsa, this was a common statement uh, in the East at this time. Uh, in other words, and just simply to show how little you wear in comparison to somebody else. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather his wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Okay, look at this right there in uh, that statement that's Matthew 3, 11 and 12, Mark 1, 7 and 8, Luke 3, 15 through 18. John was baptized in water. Now, Jesus was going to do two things when he came. He said he's going to on one hand baptize with fire and the other with the Holy Spirit. So on the one hand, it, there's going to be good things that come from him. And on the other hand, there's going to be a judgment. So, and he's talking to the Jewish people here. That's the only people that John ever talked to. So, Jesus was coming and offering something good and something negative. Alright, now when he says that that uh, they were going to be burned with unquenchable fire. Look at this, and it says that uh, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn. Uh, this obviously alludes to the custom of the way they sh separated the shaft from the wheat. That they had a winnowing fork, and they would throw that stuff up in the air, and as they continued to throw that up in the air, the, the actual wheat kernels would break loose from the shaft, and then you would shake all that shaft off, the wheat's going to be right down here on the ground, and so you're going to gather the wheat kernels up to into your barn to eat, and then the shaft you're going to burn, or use it use it in other ways, most mostly burn. It's interesting that people come to that, and we know he's not talking about literal wheat. We know he's not talking about a literal winnowing fork, and we know he's not talking about a literal shaft. That this is being used in a in a figurative sense to stand for a judgment on good people and bad people. But somehow or another we come along and where it says burn the shaft with unquenchable fire, the unquenchable fire becomes a literal thing. Well, if the unquenchable fire that the bad people are going to be burned with is literal, then the, sh then the shaft has to be literal and the wheat has to be literal and the whittling for it has to be literal. And so he takes a literal happening, but he uses that in a figurative way simply to talk about the judgment and the separation of good people from bad people. So a baptism of the Holy Spirit and also a judgment that was coming through him. Uh, Sandy, you want to read that beginning in uh, uh, Matthew 3, 13 through 17, Mark 1, 9 through 11, and Luke 3, 21 through 23. Just heard that word Jesus is baptized at right. And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John continued. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God <clears throat> descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Okay, again, the fact that he was 30 years of age would tie in, of course, to the law of Moses and, and the teaching in the book of Leviticus that 
at 30 he was considered a mature spiritual person ready to assume certain responsibilities that you could not before. So it's no accident that both John the Baptist and Jesus were 30 when they began, began their ministry. Uh, also, John will allude back to this when the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Keep in mind, the Spirit had to descend in some form for John to see it. And John obviously could not see the Spirit. But the Spirit took upon itself the form of a dove and then there was a voice out of heaven saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And so John is the witness of this. And all of these people that John has already taught and baptized, he will now identify Jesus and this experience that he has had in baptizing Jesus. And he will identify him then as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Uh, we now go to the, the incident after Jesus' baptism where the devil tempts him. And we know that uh, from what we read in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in all ways that we are. Uh, he could not be our perfect high priest. We notice something that uh, also that you can be tempted and not sin. Uh, sinning is not being tempted. Uh, sinning is when you give in to the temptation itself. And so Jesus lived in a fleshly body and he had certain temptations and those temptations had to be controlled. And so the devil then is stated here in this incident uh, in a situation where God allows him to tempt Jesus directly. Uh, Jack, would you start reading there where it says the devil tempts Jesus? Just read that section. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert, being tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil looked him to, took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command the, his angels concerning you, and they will lift up you in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this will I give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. <coughs> Okay, the Spirit leads him out in the <clears throat> desert or in a, dirty, a deserted area to be tempted by the devil. And uh, the first thing that happens is that we see the temptations involved. He's fasted for 40 days. And so obviously, as a result of, of fasting, he is hungry. And yet on the other hand, that he, his purpose there was to fast and to dwell on things spiritual and all, and that's what he had set his mind to. And so Satan could tempt him and say that if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He was hungry. Uh, he had an opportunity to fly right in the face of Satan and, and to perform that miracle. 
and it had to be a tempting thing to him, both to satisfy his hunger and also to demonstrate to Satan who he was. And he resisted the temptation and quoted uh, Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3 where it said that man does not live on bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, what happens all the way through here is interesting from the standpoint of, of uh, the canon of the Old Testament. Jesus in these th four times where he quotes scripture, three times he quotes Deuteronomy and once Psalms. And what this allows us to see from the very beginning, and we're going to notice other places he quotes as we go through here, is that there was an established body of literature that was recognized by all of the Jews as inspired by God. And so that Jesus, the fact he would state it, in other words, there were all kinds of material that was written, but he states this as a special body of material that was recognized as the Word of God. And so that it allows us to know that, and by the way, this is something that even somebody that is not a Christian and who doesn't even believe in the inspiration of the Bible, even he would agree that from these statements that there was a body of material that the Jews recognized as inspired of God at this point in time. And so he quotes here, and of course three times from Deuteronomy and once from Psalms. Now, uh, the next temptation, again, uh, he said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written. And then he quotes Psalms 91, 11 through 12 about the providential care. If you read Psalms 91, it's not necessarily talking specifically about Jesus. In fact, in its context, it's just simply talking about God's providential care for his people. And so he quotes that psalm. And that's, that's, an, that's an accurate quote. And so Jesus then says it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So we learn something there about the providential care of God. On the one hand, God has promised his providential care. On the other hand, for a Christian to not use his own intelligence or to willfully be neglectant, in, uh, negligent, I should say, in trying to protect himself and all would be to tempt God. In other words, that we have no right to go around flouting our belief in God's providential care by not doing certain things like uh, driving at the proper speed, uh, buckling our seat belts, watching what we eat, and, and things of that nature. Because God's providential care does not promise, does not even mean that God is going to step in and save us from mistakes that we make in, in breaking laws. And so we see that on the one hand, we have God's providential care. On the other hand, God expects us to use our intelligence and not to tempt him and are in, in doing things that we obviously know are wrong or not smart regarding our own health or situation at the time. Uh, again, the next one, uh, he offers him, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and says, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. The indication there is that the devil uh, has something. In other words, that... Uh, there is this battle going on between right and wrong and that this domain is the domain of the devil that he actually this is his domain and I think we see the somewhat of this big contest in the book of Job that man has put here in a situation where he cannot see into the spiritual realm and every time that through his own volition and without being coerced into something or forced into something he comes to a conclusion 
that God's way and God's laws are right, he's glorifying God. On the other hand, to the extent that he is willing to sin and deviate from God's law and fly in the face of the will of God, he literally is glorifying Satan. And, he, and, he, and he's following Satan. And it is the contention of Satan that we find in Job that uh, man is just simply not going to walk in, in God's way. That uh, our basic nature is to be selfish and concerned uh, for ourselves. And so he tells God in, in the book of Job, uh, you put a hedge around him. Uh, let me touch him and he'll curse you. And so this, this contest seems to be going on regarding our spirits and right and wrong. And from what I can see here, this place here, this is where the devil does his tempting. Right, right here on this earth. And so he tells him that he has this to offer. And I, I believe that we can look at We're tempted the same ways today. That, uh, uh, that on the one hand, God calls us to put our emphasis on the spiritual and to uh, be a certain type person. And then on the other hand, we've got the world that pulls in every direction to get us to put our emphasis on the physical. And, and the world has something to offer you. There's no question that each of us and, and do other things and put that into working to, to make money and invest in it. There's no, no question that it, that, it, that it is there. There's no question that maybe you can make more by being a little dishonest sometimes. And so that it, it is there to be had and we're, t we're tempted in the same way. All right, he says, uh, Away from me, Satan, uh, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We see something else, I think, at the end of all of that. Not only was Jesus tempted in the overall thing, in other words, he was tempted by uh, the pride of life, uh, and he was tempted by the, the flesh, and he was tempted by this opportunity for power and, and prestige and gaining things of this life, and all were tempted in all the same ways. But we can see that one of the ways that he handled that temptation was that his mind was filled with the Word of God. That uh, On the one hand, he believed in God, but his mind was filled with the will of God, and so he made every temptation with that. And I believe the same thing happens that, that from a Christian standpoint, that if he is or she is tempted over here, say, in the sexual realm, there's God's, if God's law is in his heart, thou shalt not commit adultery, and no adulterer will, will have their part in the kingdom of heaven if that's in his mind then that becomes a force there. Or if you're uh, tempted to invest all your time in riches, and you've got the example in your money, in your mind, of the rich fool, you know, this day thy soul shall be required of thee. And the other examples were the lust of riches, the love of money is a root of evil, etc. is condemned, then that has to become a force in your mind that's going to cause you to think twice before you invest all your time in just, uh, in just getting riches. And the same thing with the, the things of this life, that uh, while you're tempted in that area, if you have a real good understanding of this, I feel the same way with the simple things like modest apparel. Uh, that's why that kind of thing, the average person is not out there just reading the Bible all the time. And I think if Christians hear things like that mentioned in sermons, uh, then this person that's tempted uh, in that direction of immodesty. They've got that in their mind. Well, if they believe it, then it has to bother their conscience to deviate from it. But if you don't have that fresh on the tip of your mind, then it's very easy to go along and do what just everybody else is doing. And so I think in the way that he handles this, 
he shows us just how important it is to have a real good knowledge of God's Word in your mind. And in considering the way we're made in our conscience, if we honestly believe something is right and know it and understand it, we can't do it and not be condemned by our conscience. We just, just can't do it. People do things that are wrong out there and they're not condemned by their conscience many times because they simply don't believe it's wrong. I wonder why, Paul, that in the Old Testament, that a lot of times it's not clear what, um, when they give prophecies of Jesus. You know, you wonder sometimes why they don't say this is a prophecy of the Messiah or whatever. Just like in Psalm 69, like when I first started reading that, I thought it was probably David talking about, you know, being in trouble. He did that a lot of times, about being right. in trouble and God helping him. The thing you see as you read it, it starts off, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, etc., etc. Then it goes on, verse 3, I am worn out calling for help. My hope is, my throat is parched. And then he goes on down, verse 9, For zeal for your house consumes me. Mm -hmm. Then obviously, in the New Testament, they refer back, that that's referring to Jesus when he cleaned up the okay, temple. Okay, now we'll get to that. Then I'm down in verse 21 says they gave gall in my food and gave me vinegar for thirst. And so it's, it becomes obvious that it's a prophecy of Jesus. To me, it seems like it is. It's used that way. Uh, I don't believe that Psalms 69 was a specific prophecy of the Messiah to come. I believe that person is speaking through their own experiences and things that have happened and the way they actually feel and it is a, a statement of truths that was written into a psalm, all right? And, and later on, when Jesus did this very act of, of zeal, uh, then they remembered that passage, that zeal for thy house would consume me. In other words, that, that anybody that was extremely righteous and loving of God's law would, would have this, and so they, they noticed this. And so they recognize that. And I think it's in the same way that when Jesus said rightly that Isaiah write of you, that you've got eyes and you can't see and, and ears and you can't hear at all. Isaiah was speaking specifically to the people in his day. But then those Jews in Jesus' day were reacting in the, exactly the same ways in the days of Isaiah. So it was, it was as true then as it was back then. And so he used that passage. And there are a number of times when we have a, a situation where a particular truth is fulfilled. But when you go back and look at that, it was not necessarily a specific prophecy. Now, there were those things that were specific prophecies and all. And I think it's a little bit complicated because of the way that the writers use it, you know, in, in putting them all together. But uh, I don't believe that. Uh, when he speaks of his familiar friend that's lifted up his heel against him in Psalms uh, 41, I believe again that David's speaking out of his own experience, that his own friends turned against him. And see, David was a type of Christ. Moses was a type of Christ. Joseph was a type of Christ. In other words, any righteous person that lived and really tried to do the will of God was going to suffer certain things and reap certain benefits because of the very nature of mankind. And so that uh, all through history, the, the people who had spoke out aggressively for what is right and had stood up for it had suffered persecution and had been condemned and had been put and had put been put to death. 
And in their very doing this, like David in his life as a king, he became in many ways a type of the Messiah to come. David was imperfectly good. The Messiah would be perfectly good. And I think that uh, what, G what happened in Jesus is going to happen again in his disciples. He said, if they have called the master of the health Beelzebub, then how much more servants? In other words, Jesus is saying there that if, if, uh, if he said certain things and they called him the devil and, and they called him a blasphemer and they took his life, then how are you and I going to come along and say the same things and not have the same things happen to us? And so when, when uh, Jesus did these right things that resulted in people acting in a certain way, it was the same type of thing that other people had experienced uh, that were righteous before God in years past. But in Psalm 69, it's been taught that way. You know, I've preached it that way in the past myself. But the more I've read that in just the actual context, uh, and, and as part of the Jewish writings and all, I believe he was speaking out of his, his own experience as a, as a very righteous person. And, that is, uh, and then they remember that when Jesus goes ahead and cleanses the, the temple. So they just applied it to him. But it yeah, I believe, they could, have, it wasn't I believe you could have applied it to any righteous person that would have been so indignant that he would have done that. In other words, that the Messiah definitely was going to be a righteous man, a strong preacher, and uh, would have zeal for God. And so whenever he acted that, that was a passage that came to their mind. In other words, on the one hand, he's doing something that sounds a little outlandish. He's cleaning the temple out with a whip and overturning the tables and chasing the animals out and condemning the Pharisees. Well, they remembered a, 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 a passage over here in the Psalms that about zeal for thy house would, would consume me. And then some when it said, and they gave me vinegar for my thirst, you think? Somebody else experienced that same thing? You think a rider experienced that? Yeah, I think there was uh, several things of that nature. And it's, and it's hard. Uh, some of the Psalms... Some can't be sure of, right? right? Maybe, maybe not. Well, he was born along by the Holy Spirit. And it's like the Holy Spirit used the experiences and all of that person and his thinking and all, but then also extended it, you know, in, into the future. And it's, it's very difficult, you know, I think. But it's, uh, it definitely comes out of the experiences and all of that individual, too. And see, David, uh, David was betrayed by his friends. Uh, David suffered persecution. Uh, David uh, suffered consequences uh, as a result of his zeal for God. The same with uh, Joseph. You know, the same, same type things. Let's see what uh, we finished there on the temptation. We'll get to that real quick on that where he cleanses the temple. <coughs> Okay, in John 1, 19-28, John 1, 29-34, this is where John explains his ministry, and John says that uh, uh, Jesus is the Christ. Let's see that body right there. You want to read that, Steve? Now this was John's testimony of the Jews of Jerusalem. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. 
He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you, are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally, they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the path of the Lord. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one who, who, one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Okay, so John explains his ministry. Uh, again, we see that they're looking for somebody. He says, I'm not the Christ. Then they want to know if he's Elijah. Malachi had prophesied that Elijah was going to come again at the end of the age. And remember, Jesus will identify uh, that with John the Baptist. And so, and, and say that, uh, you know, he would come in the spirit and power of, of Elijah. But they were looking for Elijah to physically come. Then they said, are you the prophet? Well, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses had said, The Lord thy God will raise up a prophet like unto me, and to him shall you hearken. So they were looking for Elijah to come back. They were looking for this great prophet. They were looking for a son of David. That would be the, that would be the anointed one, all three of these. They were looking for other prophets uh, to be raised up at the end of the age. And so they are looking for all of this, and they just simply don't fully understand what's what's going on here. They know it's somebody spe special, John the Baptist. And then, of course, they're going to throw these at uh, Jesus, you know, and, and, and trying to figure out who he is. But what we can see at this point is their expectation. They definitely were expecting the Messiah, and the time was right. John is on the hand, uh, preparing the way for him, and he identifies himself as the fulfillment of a prophecy of Isaiah. Then he also gives his testimony that when he baptized Jesus, that uh, he heard the God identify as his son or, or, the son, or the son of God. And as John gives his testimony, keep in mind that he gives it as one that has already established himself as a super moral individual. Uh, here's one that is preaching against sin and calling people to repent and baptize them. And he's already well established as a person of truth and a super moral individual. And then he makes this comment about Jesus. Now apparently the other two scriptures that he gives doesn't add anything to it because he quoted directly from John 1, 19 through 34. Right, all and of this. And so apparently... The other two scriptures he gave there cover it, but they don't add anything to it, so well, he uses the dominant one. Right. Well, John, uh, most of the information about the early ministry of, of uh, Jesus comes from John. 
And about the remember the first of his miracles in, in Cana of Galilee and all is, is given by John. Okay, next, uh, John records the, the next is uh, from John also. Uh, about Andrew and Peter in John 1, 35 through 42. Sandy, you want to read that? <coughs> the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him saying this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas which is translated Peter. Okay. Notice a couple of things when he says that uh, uh, you will be called Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic for rock. And so that allows us to know that Jesus spoke the Aramaic language. But then John puts in uh, parenthesis here, which when translated is Peter. John, uh, Peter is Greek for rock. And so what you have here, obviously the, the audience that John seems to be writing to uh, contains a Greek populace. In other words, it's, it's people that would read it in Greek that John is writing to, and so he translates Cephas for them and lets them know that it means Peter and Cephas are the same thing. So Peter is, uh, is uh, Greek for rock, Cephas is Aramaic for rock, and we see there, as we're going to see in other cases, that Jesus spoke the Aramaic language. Notice also that Andrew... Uh, we don't read a whole lot about Andrew as one of the apostles and all. Obviously, he was a devout individual to be chosen as one of the twelve. But notice the very first thing he did is that when he thought that Jesus was the Messiah, first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him. I don't think there's a better example in the New Testament than this, that anybody that, that is, becomes a Christian, that if they really and truly believe what they professed, it seems to me that the very first thing they would want to do would be to take that information to anybody that was close to them that didn't already know it. I mean, obviously, on that. In fact, if they didn't, I'd question their own understanding. But uh, that's the very first thing, was to go and try and find, find his brother Simon, tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. Again, we see Messiah is Hebrew for the Anointed One. And uh, we see him, uh, again, speaking the Aramaic, but notice what John does, puts that in parentheses, that is the Christ. And so John is obviously, this, this translation is, that we have is obviously going out in Greek, and then John is uh, uh, translating when, when the Aramaic is used. All right, he identifies him, the disciples saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And so all through the Old Testament, going all the way back to Abel, they have had their man prepared with all of these innocent lambs without blemish that were offered as a sacrifice. And now we have John pointing out that, that here is the Lamb of God. And of course when he said that, they would identify with this. Whether they fully understand the studied at this point, I don't believe they did. I believe they just, you know, it was just said and they didn't fully understand it. 
but yet the information the information was there and they would understand it later on. Okay, now with uh, Philip and Nathaniel, uh, let's see, uh, Jack, you want to read that please on that uh, 43, verse 43 through 51. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathan said. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathan approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathan asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathan declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe, because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you, the truth, you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Obviously, Nazareth didn't have a great reputation for its morality or spirituality because <coughs> the his state His statement that could anything good come from there. Uh, Lamson had an interesting observation there where he says, uh, where he said he saw him under the fig tree and whatever transpired there, and of course we don't know how much of that conversation we got, it was very <coughs> impressive to him. Uh, Lamson makes this observation, he said, I have seen you under the fig tree is an idiom which means I have known you since you were a child or since you were in the cradle. Fig trees serve as a protection from the sun in the hot summer months. And while the women work in the fields, their babies lie under the shadow of the fig trees. To say I have seen you under the fig tree does not mean that I have actually seen you under the tree, but I know you very well. Okay, and then he, and then he says some more, but that's all. That anyway, that, that this was a, a common idiom that was used and we would say in the same way, I've known you since you was a child. And so the indication to my mind would be that when he says that I, know, I saw you under the fig tree, if what Lambs is saying is the truth, and apparently it is an idiom that's in use, but there could have been some other things not recorded by John that he said when he said, I've known you since you were a child, but he said whatever he said was enough to be overly impressive to Nathaniel. In other words, that that here is somebody, it's sort of like the Samaritan woman. And when uh, Jesus meets her, she's just impressed by the fact he knows so much about her. And he knows that she's had five husbands, and the one she's married with now is not her husband. And just telling her that caused her to believe that he was the Messiah. And she ran and told others. And so the indication to my mind here is that, that although we have just this recorded, that, that Jesus gave him enough information 
about his past, going all the way back to his childhood, that sort of like the Samaritan woman, that he was just overly impressed with that and knew that he had to be somebody special in order to know, know that information. Okay. Uh, oh, another thing we know here. Let's see. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Uh, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and whom the prophets also wrote. Again, in thinking in terms of the Jewish canon, we see a body of scriptures that these people identify in terms of Moses and the prophets. And we can also see, even before the story unfolds, that they definitely understood that Moses said some things about a Messiah to come and the prophets have said some things about a Messiah to come. But they actually understood that. And then later we'll see that they refer to Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms in dividing this into, up into three, three bodies. But before we're through the New Testament, one of the things that we'll see with the story itself is that all of the apostles, the Lord, and the Jews, the Pharisees and all, that they all agree that there is a body of material here that they believe is inspired by God. That they're the holy scriptures uh, to the exclusion of everything else. And this will become a factor in helping us to, to go back and nail down just what that body of literature is and, and the fact that it was so recognized and how long it had been recognized, you know, as, as inspired by God. Okay, let's go ahead and pause for tonight then where he we're up to the point where he turns the water into wine in John the second chapter. We'll go ahead and pause and start there next week.